0: Good to see you on this uh, lovely August day. Um, Glad to be back this week after a short trip down to South Carolina. Um, Listened to last week's message and I thought about bringing my tackle box this morning, uh, but then I realized I didn't have a tackle box. (laughs) So, uh, uh, I did wear a fishing shirt, however, this morning so uh, but um, yeah Eric did a great job last week and I promise we will not be talking about vomit this morning so <laughs> you'll be glad to hear that. We are continuing our study in chapter 3 of Second Peter. And uh, it's just been a, a wonderful time in this book, very challenging. Uh, today will be no different. Uh, you will need to put your thinking caps on here in just a little bit. So, um, you know, I don't know if you, the songs that we sang here you know, this morning just you know, made me think about Jesus' words. He says that if, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then as Paul uh, wrote, the apostle Paul wrote, yeah, all those who desire to, to live godly, you know, will be persecuted. And it just makes you, you, you wonder, um, you know, am I living a godly life? I mean, if, if people aren't ridiculing me, aren't persecuting, aren't scoffing uh, at things, maybe, maybe I'm not living in a way that uh, generates that because Jesus says it's a given, if that's the kind of life that we're going to live, and and that's certainly what um, the people that Peter is writing to—that's what they were experiencing, and he gets into that quite a bit here in in chapter three. But I don't think times have changed that much because we live in a in an age of in, in you know um, credulity. Um, where there's lots of mocking, lots of scorn concerning the things of God. Uh, even the people of God are mocked. Um, and the most severe condemned, I think, is reserved for, for, for Jesus' return and for you know, the future judgment that we speak about. I mean, it's, it's one thing you know, for Jesus to come to be a good moral teacher and all that kind of stuff, but the, the thought of him returning... Supernaturally. I mean that just his return alone tells you a lot about who Jesus is and what that means for us. And then the thought of of judgment on top of this, it's just it's not something that our world can handle. So we should should not be surprised by this. There have been and always will be scoffers. That is until Christ returns. Let's commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know uh, that your word is true. And we know that even today, our world is filled with those who scoff at your word and all the promises that are contained therein. And Lord, today, as it was in, in Peter's day, it's not easy Um, to live the Christian life, to live for you, for there are many um, who um, would ridicule us, who would ostracize us, who would um, do everything they can to make life miserable for us simply because they are in opposition to you. And Lord, we we need you. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. We need your guidance. uh, We need your encouragement. And so, Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning that we might realize we're not alone in this journey, that many have gone before us who have walked the path, who have faithfully lived out their lives in a way that is pleasing to you. And Lord, that's our prayer this morning, that we would do the same. So Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our God as we look at your holy word. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning, as we begin uh, chapter 3 of Second Peter, we're going to see that believers can cling to the promise of Christ's return in the face of scoffers. We can, by God's grace and by his strength. And Peter knew that the believers in Asia Minor were uh, under uh, considerable pressure by false teachers, by these scoffers who were trying to seduce them from their hope in Christ to get them to follow them and their evil ways. And Peter writes to encourage them to stand firm in the faith and not to interpret Christ's apparent delay as proof that he's not coming back. And so he spends time here to assure them that Christ Jesus is in fact returning. He will come back. And when he does... You better be sure you're on the right side of history. You better be sure you have a relationship with Christ. And he starts to get into it here in chapter 3 as to what will happen when he comes. But he's going to come and he's going to close, bring to a close, all of human history. So what I'd like to do this morning, uh, again, something that I've, I've done Recently, as I'd just like to read um, from Second Peter, if you have your Bibles, please take them out, and I'm going to read the first nine verses here, and then we'll go through the text. Peter writes, and he says, "This is now the second letter that I am writing you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere." Mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God bless the reading of his word this morning. This second letter that Peter is writing is most likely written to the same audience um, that we have in First Peter. Now, it's it's not absolutely certain um, that First Peter is the is, is the letter that you know Peter is referring to here when he says this is the second time that we've written to you. But most scholars believe that it is. The similarities, uh, some of the concepts and th- themes are present, um, and he speaks that in both letters. He set out to remind them of many of these things. And so as we look at these nine verses, we're gonna clearly see Peter's purpose for this chapter along with a stern warning and then a forceful admonition. So let's take a look at Peter's purpose. I think he's very clear with this. It's to stir up their thinking by way of reminder. And he says both of these letters were designed for that. But if you go back to chapter one of Second Peter, he, he states it very clearly when he says, I think it is right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. And then now here in chapter three, he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Um, Peter is pointing back, to chapter 1 with this statement in chapter 3. And he's referring to that which they already know and believe. He's not introducing new truth here. He's simply reminding them of what they already know. And if you remember in that week in which uh, we looked at this text in chapter 1, I mentioned that the verb that's translated stir up literally means to wake up or to arouse from slumber, to stimulate thinking, to stir up feelings, or to provoke to action. See, Peter's readers already knew the truth, but now they needed to be awakened, or shook up, or stimulated to to actually implement that which they know. It was a wake-up call to the serious responsibilities that the gospel and the knowledge of God demand. You know, the more that you know, do you realize the more you are responsible for? That's why it's a dangerous thing for people sometimes to crave more and more Bible studies, to crave more and more knowledge, because the more you know, the more God is gonna hold you responsible for for doing. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we're told, let not many of you become teachers, because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. Peter is trying to stimulate them to write in wholesome thinking as uh, the NIV 84 and the New Living Translation actually render this particular text. So, what do we need to remember? Well, real simply, it's the truths of Scripture. Um, Peter says it in a a unique way here, again, very reminiscent of chapter 1, where he says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Remember back in chapter 1, you know, he's talking about the word of God, that we, 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 we've gotten the word from the prophets through Holy Scripture, and it's much more reliable than that which comes from these false teachers. Now, the context seems to indicate that the predictions that Peter is talking about here are predictions pertaining to his second coming and to the judgment And the reference to the commandment of the Lord might simply be just a reference to the command to repent and believe the gospel. But Peter could have in mind some other things. But no matter what Peter has in mind, the point is the same. And that is, is that God's word trumps anything that these false teachers would have to say. That's where we need to look to the writings of the prophets, to the words of the apostle, which we now have in written form. The word of God is the final authority in life and faith. And of course, we would then ask, well, why do we need to be reminded of these things? And we've talked about this already, ad nauseum. But really, the most obvious reason is is that we tend to forget. We tend to lose sight of, of what God has already said to us. We, how many times, you know, we read passages and we think, oh, yeah, and we vaguely remember it and we wonder where it is. And praise God, we have tools like concordances that help us find things, and, and, and you know, but it's not quite the same as having it memorized down pat, chapter and verse, right? And you've got to know before you can do. And so it's helpful. And, and Peter, you know, I mentioned this in that week. I, I said, this is the ministry here of repetition. He said, it's no trouble for me to do this for you. And you need it. We need it. We tend to forget. We tend to get lazy. We tend to get focused on the here and the now that we forget why we're still on planet Earth, why God didn't take us home the minute we came to faith in Christ. We've got a job to do. We need to be reminded of these things because that is, is how our minds are renewed. We are renewed by the word of God. As we think about it, pray about it, read it, hear it, our minds are renewed. We, we need to be reminded so that we can know what commands we ought to obey so that we might live a life pleasing to God. If your heart's desire is to please God, then you've got to know what God requires. Thus, we need reminders. I think we need reminders because we need to be able to focus on the eternal. And we need to keep our eyes riveted on Jesus and and even though it may feel like Jesus is never coming back or at least he's not coming back in our lifetime we can't afford to live like that we we have to live as if Jesus might come back this afternoon or tomorrow or next week that, that it, within the in the early church the word imminent was a big word. They believed that Christ's return was imminent. It was just, they didn't know when it was gonna happen, but they believed it was gonna happen. And you know, that has a purifying effect on us as believers. You know, I, I, I don't know if I've you know, mentioned this before, but I certainly remember growing up um, how many times, um, you know, I kind of look forward to my parents going away. So I could have the rule of the house and do what I want, you know, and I would be absolutely horrified if I was in the middle of doing something I shouldn't have been doing and they came home. And oftentimes, um, some of you parents probably can relate to this, you know, Um, you know, you you surprise your kids. You call them, we're on our way home. Oh okay, you know, and, and they're they're cleaning up real quick, doing whatever. There, there's something about knowing that, you know, mom and dad are gonna come home that changes your behavior, changes what you're supposed to be doing. And I think the same thing is true with with the return of Christ. If if we really believe, really believe he could come at any time. That's gonna impact the way that we live our lives. And and we need to be reminded of these things simply because we we, we need to be able to stand firm in the faith. And it's a way of fortifying us. So that's Peter's, Peter's purpose. And now we come in verse 3 to Peter's warning. And he says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now Peter signals the importance of what he's about to say with this phrase, knowing this first of all. You know, this is of first importance. You guys need to know this and recognize this, that these false teachers, these scoffers are going to come in these last days. And and he wants to prepare them to face them and their scoffing. Now, um, you know, the word scoff, it's not a word we use too much anymore, but it simply means to jeer, or to mock, um, or to treat something with contempt. And scoffing at the return of Christ actually reveals an ignorant... prideful, sinful, arrogant heart that's full of disdain for God in his word. And and Peter says that these scoffers will come in the last days. Now, I've already mentioned, there've always been scoffers. Even before the time of Jesus, there's always been scoffers. But these scoffers are scoffing specifically at the idea of Christ's return and a future judgment. But as believers no matter how much scoffing they do, we can cling to the promise of Christ's return. And we must. Now, people tend to fall into two camps when it comes to the last days. We either live as though Jesus is never coming back, and you know what that looks like, or we have an unhealthy preoccupation with the end times. Now, not living with you know, the idea of Christ's return uh, can lead not only to an ineffective and unfruitful Christian life, but um, we can lose sight of the mission of God. We we begin focus, like I said, on, on the here and the now, the creature comforts. We begin looking to security and and comfort and safety as the be-all, end-all. We're not thinking about life beyond this world, even though we know this world is not our home. If we don't think that Jesus is going to return at any moment, we will end up pursuing our own sinful pleasures without fear of recompense. And that's exactly what the false teachers were saying and doing. They were trying to get them to follow them. Hey, there's no judgment. Jesus isn't coming back. You can live any way you want. But as wrong as that is, the other end of the spectrum is equally as wrong. You know, there's something about the end times that captures our interest in our imagination. Um, perhaps it 's because of novels that we 've read or movies that we have seen uh, maybe it 's because we love mystery and and the end times you know if nothing else is mysterious i mean the 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 unknown it's it 's alluring to us and Western um, evangelical Christians uh, tend to be myopic myopic and and gullible when it comes to uh, the last days. We we look at current events and we declare, ah, signs of the times. And they very well may be signs of the times. But oftentimes we fail to understand we're not the first people to see these signs of the times. We have been in the last days since Jesus's first advent. And there have been many, 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 many people who have recognized some of the signs of the time. All throughout, you know, the last 2,000 years. You know, in, in the last century alone, there have been numerous people who have pointed to wars, political alliances, astronomical signs, natural disasters, famines, pestilence, disease, and much more as proof that the end is near. How many of you guys remember uh, back in the 80s that book, um, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988? You know, um, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a bestseller back then, you know? Yeah, book sales aren't doing so well anymore. Today there are so-called end times prophets or experts that are telling us how to prepare for the end. Get your money out of the bank. Buy gold. Stock up on food and water. Buy solar panels. Get, get batteries and, you know, so you can charge them. You know, Make sure you got enough ammo. Um, gas, medical supplies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The list is endless. You know what I say? Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because I don't know about you, but when he comes back, I don't plan on sticking around. Uh, I don't want to be here. I'm not going to prepare for that. I need to prepare my soul for when Jesus returns so that I am ready to meet my maker, so that he's ready to, to take me home. And until then, I've got a job to do, and that's the same job you do. We have to proclaim the gospel. We have to compel people to come in. We have to live a life that is pleasing to God. And um, that's what that's what we need to do. The, these scoffers, however, they follow their own sinful desires, as Jude says, following their own ungodly passions. These false teachers and scoffers had a form of godliness but they denied the power thereof. They denied the transforming power of Christ and they followed the lusts of their own flesh. And Jesus said that in the last days, they're gonna be just like the people were in Noah's day. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were all unaware until the flood came, swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. People are going to go on with their lives as if nothing is going to happen, as if Jesus isn't going to come back. They're going to keep going through the motions, having a good time, doing what they have always done, going from bad to worse, and then they will be swept away. So here in verse 4, we read that they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, you have to understand, they weren't simply saying, hey, it's been 30 years or so since Jesus' ascension. And, um, you know, we don't think he's coming back. That's not what they're saying here. They're saying something a lot bigger than that. Their argument, notice their argument. They point to the patriarchs and to creation itself. You see, what is being revealed here about them is that they had a naturalistic worldview known as uniformitarianism. That's a big word. Or the doctrine of uniformity. It is a natural philosophy That basically says that our world is a closed system. So nothing from outside of it can can impact it. That that our world is governed by natural laws that preclude any kind of divine intervention. And that's why they go all the way back to the patriarchs and they go back to creation. So they look back at history and they go, nothing's changed. It's always been this way. And these natural laws are, no, there's no way Jesus can come back. There's no way there's going to be a cataclysmic judgment at the end of time. The world, their worldview did not allow for creation, miracles, or judgment. There's a lot of people today like that, right? That's how they operate. There is no God. Well, Scripture says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So Peter gives an admonition, first of the scoffers and then of believers, and you see that there in verse 5. These people willfully, willfully are ignorant of things that they ought not be ignorant of. Look at verse five, it says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So the world was created out of water and through water by the word of God. And by the way, you can read about that in Genesis chapter one. But the world was also once destroyed by water in, in the word. You see that in verse 6. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And you can read about that in Genesis 6 through 8. But then Peter goes on to say something else. He says, the present heavens and the earth will also one day be destroyed. Verse seven, but by the same word, the heavens, that is the same word that created the earth, that destroyed the earth, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. See, the evidence is there. The historical record is there. They deliberately overlooked these facts. They didn't want there to be a God. Because the minute that they're willing to to, to say that God is, they then have to start asking the questions, okay, what is he, she, or it like? And what does this God require of me? And when you don't want to be responsible to anyone but yourself, you don't ask those questions. So it's just easy to dismiss it, to pretend God doesn't exist, that he doesn't have a will for our lives, that he expects us to obey, and that there is a judgment I think that's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 these words. He said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's not that they don't know it. They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Now today... We have books galore that argue and argue quite well uh, for the existence of God. Um, There are many, many scientists who, who, based on scientific evidence, basically conclude that it takes more faith not to believe in God than to believe in God. Um, and I don't know if you, you enjoy reading those kinds of things, but, but I do. Uh, I love reading about scientific discoveries, about DNA, about the human eye, and all sorts of things that just, it's amazing. But you know, you don't have to be a scientist or an avid reader to know that God exists. Take a walk someday. Out in the woods. Up in the mountains. Go to the ocean. Look in your backyard at the trees, the squirrels. I mean, I mean, just stop to think about it for a minute. You know, did this world really just pop into existence all by itself? Is, are we all really a matter of time and chance? And I, and I think the evidence is overwhelming. And that's the point that Peter's getting to. get These guys, all you have to do is look up and you know that there's a God. Now, as we look at, The rest of this chapter, what what you're gonna see here is that four times in this chapter, Peter refers to his readers as the beloved. The NIV 84 renders the Greek word um, agapatoi as dear friends. But the word literally means one who is deeply loved and cherished. So what we have to understand here is that Peter is actually making a contrast he's contrasting the beloved with these false teachers with these scoffers and it's important to understand that otherwise we're going to misunderstand what he is saying now notice the the word overlook in verse 5 and then in verse 8 the the these scoffers deliberately what overlooked he uses the same word in verse 8 when he says that they're not to overlook something since we're not to deliberately overlook the truth and this one particular truth that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Now there are, there are some people that have taken this verse and they've tried to figure out all sorts of time things based on this, but they don't really understand the verse because he's not saying, okay, one day is a thousand years. So if there's so many days, it's how so many thousand. Years, because then he says, well, in a thousand years is is one day. So that's really just what the point that Peter's trying to make is: God ain't like you. He doesn't think like you. He doesn't act like you. Don't expect him to do what you would have him do. The Lord actually said through the prophet Isaiah for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts boy if we if 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 we just took those two verses and meditated that on that the rest of our lives oh we'd have a much higher view of god no doubt But what Peter is really saying is that God does not work on our timetable. He is not slow in fulfilling his promise to return. His delay, apparent delay, is purposeful. And what's it say? That he is being patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, verse 9, like 1 Timothy 2 4, I think has been greatly misunderstood. Um, those who believe that God desires for all people to be saved will often quote this verse to refute the doctrine of election. And that being that God, by a sheer act of his grace, has chosen to save some of fallen humanity from their just punishment. But I think if we're to rightly understand this verse, we, we have to first admit there is some ambiguity here. There are some things that are difficult to understand. I mean, what exactly do the words wishing, any, and all mean? We, we think we know, but what exactly do they mean? So I think it'll be helpful for us to look at a few other translations. Uh, this is where you now need to put on your thinking caps, okay? uh the new american standard and i don't have it on screen but i'm just condensing it the the new american standard 95 basically says, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The NIV 84 says, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And the King James says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So to kind of help you see this, um, I got a text comparison that I put up there on the screen, so you can just see how the different translations have translated these words um, so that you can have a better understanding of the text. Now, it's easy to see when you look at that and when you look at those verses, why this verse is used to argue against the doctrine of election. On face value, the text appears to be saying that God wants everyone to be saved. And that fits with our understanding of who God is and his character. For God so loved the world, right? I mean, it it fits. But the argument proves too much. So let me see if I can break it down. First, if God does not wish, want, or will for anyone to perish... And if he wills everyone to reach or come to repentance, then all people will be saved. This is actually a heresy known as universalism. The belief that all people will be saved. Eventually, anyway. That no one will be left out of God's heaven. But the Bible teaches us that everyone is not saved. I think that's very clear. So here's the dilemma. If God truly wants or wills for all people to be saved, and they are not, then he is no longer sovereign or omnipotent. For he is unable to save those whom he wants to save. So the argument either leads to universalism or it leads to an impotent God. So I believe that the key to rightly understanding this verse is actually in understanding the terms that are being used here. So let's, let's talk about this word wishing or willing or Wanting. This word is used in the New Testament in respect to God in several different ways, and we need to understand them. Uh, You've probably heard of the different wills of God. Well, that's exactly what we need to look at here. First of all, the word is often used in regards to to God's sovereign or decretive word. And, And by that, it is God's decree or sovereign choice that is efficacious, meaning it will do what God wants it to do. That that when God wants something to happen, it must always come to pass. When God commands, ordains, wills, or decrees something to occur, it does so without exception. That's his sovereign or decretive will. Then you have what is known as God's pre Preceptive, preceptive, or what I call his moral will. This consists of God's precepts or commands revealed to us in His Word. His preceptive will ought to be obeyed, but often is not. I mean, you need you need no go any further back than Genesis chapter three, right? Do not eat of the knowledge of, of the tree the, from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good good and evil. Um, the Ten Commandments are a good example of God's preceptive will. The command to repent and believe the gospel. God, does, God commands that, but he doesn't force that. And so you have God's preceptive will. And we violate this will every time we sin. Uh, John MacArthur said this, and I'm sorry, I don't have it on screen, but he says, God's decretive will and perceptive will must be held in tension. To deny his preceptive will is to commit injustice against God's holiness and to ignore the gravity of sin. But to deny God's decretive will is to deny his omniscience, wisdom, omnipotence, and sovereignty. So then this word willing, wishing, wanting also can refer to God's permissive will. This is what God permits to to happen. God allows sin to be committed, but for a greater purpose. He does so so that his character and his wisdom and his power might be seen. Though the actions themselves do not please God, he uses them to achieve his purposes and bring about his glory. One of the best uh, examples of that is in the life of Joseph. When his brothers threw him into prison, they did evil. And what did he say? He said, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So that's God's permissive will. And then there's a a fourth will. I call it God's effective. Some other people refer to it as his dispositional will. His effective, not effective, effective or dispositional will. This expresses God's heart or disposition towards his creation. For instance, in Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 23, we're told that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yet he decrees that the wicked be punished for their sins. Though he decrees their punishment, he takes no pleasure in their death. His effective will, then, is how God feels about something or someone. Now, of these four wills, the first and the last are the only options available to us here in Second Peter for this particular verse. So, it's either God's decretive will, his sovereign will, or it's his effective will. Um. And I, I'll be honest with you, I, I was pretty set on what I believed uh, going into my sermon prep. And then I began to see things and it ah, made me wonder. And I would dig a little bit deeper. And, and now I'm going to tell you, I'm not sure. So let me just share with you my, my thoughts on this. If the word words any or all or everyone refer to all human beings, then I think we should understand God's wishing all people to be saved as his effective will. His heart, his desire, his feelings towards people. That is that God desires for all people to be saved, but he has not decreed that all people be saved. Otherwise, Peter would be teaching universalism. This, of course, flies in the face of Scripture and everything we know about God, about man, about sin, and about salvation. All right. Some of you are going, well, that sounds, I can see that. All right, let me muddy the waters just a little bit. I think it's also reasonable to conclude that the will of God spoken of in verse nine is in fact God's sovereign, decretive will. And you go, wait a minute, Paul. You just said that if if that was the case, that Peter would be teaching universalism. Yes. If the words any, all, and everyone apply to all people. But does it? We need to ask, any what? When he says, I, he, des- desires, he doesn't desire for any to perish. See, we naturally assume when we hear that word, because the way it's used in the English language, it means everyone. But does it? I think the answer is found in the previous phrase and throughout the chapter, but in the previous phrase, but is patient towards you. And the you here is plural. It's in the plural form. And it is the antecedent to the words any and all or, or everyone. So rather than any referring to all people and every human being, Peter seems to be referring to the beloved as the any or the elect of God as the any. So I tried to paraphrase this to see if it could make sense, so here, here's my best shot at it. God is patient toward y'all, <laughs> or if you prefer, you guys. He is not willing that any of you should perish, but that you would all repent and be saved. And, and the more I start thinking about it, I see it, it makes sense. And, and not only does it make sense, but if, it, if it's true, then it's one of the strongest texts on divine election in the New Testament. And then I thought, wait a minute, I got to go check and make sure I'm not on left field on this. And I, 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 I turned to uh, R.C. Sproul, um, who said this about it. Uh, and I do have this on screen. He says, Peter is clearly distinguishing the believer from the unbeliever, the scoffer and the false prophet. Peter is writing to the elect Therefore, the any and the us, that's in the King James Version, use and ours, um, are the elect. No passage in all scripture more strongly defends the unconditional election than this one. That God sovereignly decrees that none of his elect will perish and that all whom he has chosen will come to him. They will repent. They will come in faith to him because election is not in the abstract. Election is unto faith, repentance, and salvation. I warned you, you needed your thinking caps. And I'm sure that this hasn't satisfied um, all your, your thinking on it. Uh, I, I just keep reminding myself of the words of, of Moses in, in Deuteronomy that the secret things belong to our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children so that we may, be, we may obey all these things. So regardless of the two views that we have before us and which one you take, what we do know is that all people will not be saved. That's clear. We know that God is not hamstrung or put in a straitjacket because of the free will of man. God is not subservient to us. And we know that one day the Lord Jesus will return and the present heavens and the earth will be destroyed with fire as will all the ungodly. So the real question we need to ask is, will we be ready for that day? If you're not part of the beloved or you're not sure, then you need to know that up until the present time, God has been patient with you. Not wanting you to perish, but that you should come to repentance. He's been giving you time to repent, but do not presume upon his patience. You have no guarantee that you will live to see another opportunity than the one that is before you right now here in this room or watching online. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. Don't put off to tomorrow what can be done today. Tomorrow may never come. That's my challenge to those of you that Do not yet know Christ. Turn to him. Repent of your sins. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God, that you died on the cross for my sins so that I could be forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. I invite you to come into my life to be my Lord, to be my king, to be my master, and help me to follow you all the rest of my life. You can do that this morning right where you're sitting. You just go to the Lord in prayer and you tell him that. And then if if you do, I would encourage you, tell somebody else. Let them rejoice with you. Let them encourage you. I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to get you some resources to get you started in the Christian life. Don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Beloved, we should not be surprised that we are surrounded by scoffers. They've always been, and they always will be, until the day they see Jesus appear in the clouds in great glory. Until that day occurs, we have been given a charge. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And it's our job to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, to ready people for the day of the Lord. And we're going to talk more about that next well, next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning, for your word to us, and um, Lord, just the the gravity of our situation. Um, Lord, forgive us for living our lives um, in one of those two extremes, either just failing to realize you could come back at any time or or having an unhealthy preoccupation with the end times. Lord, we we just want to live in the center of your will. Um, We want um, to enjoy this world that you have placed us in, but we want to look for the next um, because that's our true home. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a deep work in us to make us more like Jesus so that there might be many more lovers of, of him in your kingdom as a result. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.